This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 42. Justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. Now, this episode marks the beginning of what I hope is a positive development and change in the production of the show. So I've bragged on here before in one of the Fortress segments about my daughter making the kind of top tier class of her of our school district's youth orchestra. Yay, kid. And recently, she just also made the string quartet for the orchestra, which is you know really great. It has nothing to do with the show, except for the fact that both classes are held in the same place one hour right after each other. So instead of sitting in a parking lot for an hour a day, two days a week, I'm now going to be sitting in the same parking lot for two hours a day, two days a week, which means I have four hours to just sit in the car. And that is where I've been doing a lot of my podcasting lately. So hopefully I will be able to not only ensure that the episodes are coming out on time and I'm going to try, I'm going to experiment with putting them out every Thursday going forward. Um, last week I put one out on Thursday. It went really, really well. Um, uh, recording here in the car, <laughs> Mondays and Wednesdays should be able to get me have everything wrapped up in time to put it out for Thursday. And hopefully it'll also make it so where I can actually start getting ahead of schedule, where I can actually start building up a, a queue of episodes uh slowly. So that, you know, if I'm if something comes up and I'm rushed, I'll already have one ready to go. So we'll see how this works out. Um I'm feeling feeling pretty excited about it as excited as I can be, um, was sitting in a parking lot for two, for two hours. Um, there's also a heads up, um, the school where, where the kid has her practice, they've also, it's also soccer season now. And there's also a, a youth soccer game going on at the same time. I don't think you hear anything from that, but when the game lets out, there are probably going to be a lot of cars uh, leaving uh, from soccer parents and all that, and uh, there are also going to be buses pulling up and stuff. So when that happens, as soon as I get to a stopping point on whatever I'm saying, I'm going to pause the recording, let the noise go by, and then resume. Hopefully, it'll be as a seamless a transition as possible. I hate editing. <laughs> I hate editing more than anything because. Uh, Anchor's editing software is not the greatest, and I, I realized I could export everything into Adobe Edition and edit it there and then reformat it and put it back up, and I just really, really don't want to. So I'm going to try to make sure everything goes really smoothly. 
But all that being said, um, today's episode, we're going to talk about Action Comics number 969 and New Superman number 6, both from December 14th of 2016. But before we get into that, as always, I have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, my dad says this thing at the end of every phone call. And I didn't start noticing it until a few years ago. And it used to drive me absolutely nuts. Instead of talk to you later, he says, talk at you later. And it used to drive me crazy. To me, it comes across as very rude. Because my dad has very bad social skills. And um, it comes across as him saying... I don't value anything that you have to say to me. I only value what I have to say to you. I'm going to talk in your general direction. And I doubt you'll have anything important to say back to me. And that's still how I interpret that. I really wish he wouldn't say it. But as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that that statement also kind of applies to me. But I'm just not as brazen about it. Um... Not that I don't value talking to people. I'm just very, very bad at small talk. Um, I am good at talking at people. (laughs) Um, Obviously, I do this where I talk at you guys every week. Um, At my old job, I held uh, four training certifications because I'm very good at explaining to people how to do a thing that I know how to do. Um... And stuff like that. Um, I'm currently going for my real estate certification so that I can start selling houses and you know running apartments and stuff like that and basically doing a sales pitch. I'm good at talking at people. I'm not great at talking to people because I don't know how to do small talk. I really don't. Um, I think it's part of the ADHD thing. I honestly at one point uh, got had myself tested to see if I was on like super high functioning autism. I'm not. Um, you know, not there'd be anything, you know, terrible, bad if it was, I just, I'm not. Um, but I do have very, very bad ADHD, which means I have trouble seeing things outside of my particular perspective sometimes. Um, so like when it comes to conversation, I can back and forth about superheroes. I can back and forth about politics. And another thing that I'm really, really fascinated that I can back and forth with people about is psychology. I've been fascinated by human psychology since I was in high school. And I do a lot of reading up on it. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with today's political spectrum, trying to understand why people on the other side of the ideological spectrum think the way they do, how, you know, people that are in power that go about doing cruel things for their own benefit, how they can think the way that they do stuff like that. And um, there, I read something recently about something that really, really fascinated me. Um, there is a general uh, conception that as we get older, we become uh, less likely to take in new ideas and stuff like that. And so we become more set in our ways. And, um, and at certain some people, they become almost a parody of themselves. And there are both 
phys physiological theories behind that and psychological theory. The physiological theory is that the the um, the pathways in your brain, the the neural pathways, begin to degrade somewhat, where it becomes almost impossible to really accept new ideas. Um, and then the blood vessels to the brain begin to change and things like that. The there's a psychological explanation for it that I read that talks about how as we become older we become kind of more the the pure expression of who we really are inside because of less of a need to try to put on a facade for other people and that a lot of how we present when we're younger in our teens in our 20s and early 30s a good percentage of it is a facade, whether we really, whether we realize it or not, because of the desire to, you know, the the biological desire to fit into like, you know, a quote unquote tribe, you know, a group of people that accept you, and to find a mate, right? Whether it's you know a person you plan on actually meeting with or not, or you're biologically capable of meeting with, it's a desire to find a you know, more or less a life partner. And as we get older. And because biologically your body thinks that, you know, okay, I'm to a certain age now where I either, I, I don't have a biological imperative to, you know, reproduce, even if you're, again, don't intend on reproducing. Your, that need to present a false front begins to fall away, whether you realize it or not. And so by the time you hit your late 40s, <laughs> like I am now and older, you begin to kind of unfilter more and more. And, you know, with some people, that means that if they had racist ideas that they that they kept covered up because they didn't want to offend a social circle or offend a potential uh, partner, that begins to fall away. You know, if you are... Uh, you know, someone who's largely antisocial on the inside, but you are presenting as being, uh, ex, you know, outgoing, even if you didn't feel that way, that begins to fall away. And I actually really like this theory. And I like it because I like who I've become as a middle-aged adult. Now, I've always been at least to the left of center. Um, I've always believed that everyone deserves the same rights as everybody else. And um, I've always believed in regulations that make everybody safe. But when I was younger, my and, and my beliefs are very far to the left now. When I was younger, they were more to the center. And if you were if you were a you know left of center person, there's in my opinion there's nothing wrong with that. You know as long as you're leaning to the left, we're good. If you lean to the, if, you, if you lean to the right, I'm not saying you know, I'm not saying the people that don't lean to the right aren't good people, but I think those of us that lean to the left want everybody else to be happier, not just ourselves. But anyway, um, one of the and I grew up in a very conservative family. Um, like my grandma was a Sunday school teacher, one of my grandmas. My 
other grandparents. Uh, very quietly racist. Um, my mom and my dad, um, very, I don't, as far as socially, I don't think they really cared what happened to other people. I don't think they were necessarily, you know, hoping that other people would have less rights than them. I just don't think that they, they cared one way or another if other people had, you know, less rights than straight white people. Um, but they're always like very, very financially conservative. You know, no, nobody deserves a, you know, a helping hand up financially, that kind of thing. Um, and I think I turned out more liberal than them, largely because I raised myself on comics. They didn't take a lot of effort in the raising me. I kind of raised myself and I think comic books had a lot to do with my emotional and ideological development. But when I was in high school, I was very strongly for the death penalty. Now, I remember I, in high school speech class, we actually had, um, like the first quarter of it, I had, I had speech class for a semester and the first, the first quarter of it was basically, you know, giving speeches on different topics. And, and the second class, second quarter was all debate. And I remember one of the topics that you could choose from, um, to debate pro or against was the death penalty and I chose pro and, um, I remember, and I actually remember during the debate using a lot of straw man arguments that just to more or less make people laugh. And I won the debate based on straw man arguments, which is, which I'm, to this day, I'm kind of ashamed of. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that. But also, um, since I raised myself on comic books and in the early 90s, my favorite superheroes were kind of violent anti-heroes. My favorite characters in the in 1992 were Cable and Ghost Rider. So, <laughs> again, I think comic books have steered how I how I view the world a lot. And, you know, now I'm a Superman fan and even in the last almost 2 years that I've been a Superman fan, I felt myself moving more and more to the left and more and not that I wasn't compassionate towards people you know, in the years growing up to it, but I feel more compassionate now. And me being against the death penalty, I think is a part of that. Um, and if you're for the death penalty, great. You know, my wife and I, we, my wife is pro death penalty on certain things and we have a, a debate on a regular basis about it. Um, so it's not, you know, we can't not be friends if, if you're pro death penalty, but, um, there, there's a Superman moment that makes me think about this because I, I try to tell, tie all these talks into Superman during the future state event that came out in early 2021. One of them was Imperious Lex, where it's, um, probably 30 years in the future and Lex has his own planet. He has the the a new version of Lexor. And he runs the planet like Fox News. Basically it has its own ver you know, this thing called Lex News and everything is a very right wing propaganda spin on everything. And Superman and Lois come to the planet and it's a red sun planet, of course, and the the people of the city where Superman lands to try to help these people, they try to kill him. Like straight out. And he escapes and he gets away. And he goes back to this kind of ruling council of, you know, galactic leaders. And um, 
Superman and Lois are like, well, we need to go back to the people of Lexor and help them. You know, I think by this point, Lex has been captured, and but the planet is falling apart socially, economically. Um, structure, not structure, not like the planet isn't falling apart, but the infrastructure of the planet is falling apart. And I don't know if it's supposed to be Hawkman or if it's just supposed to be another Thanagarian. And he like yells at Superman. It's like, these people try to kill you. Why do you think they deserve mercy? And Superman says, nobody deserves mercy. That's what makes it mercy. And that re- that shook me hard when I read that. Um, and there are some people out there that have done some horrible things in the last few years. Um, and a lot of people call for them to be executed for what they've done. And maybe that's the right thing. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But where I fall on it is adding another death to to a lot of deaths already doesn't fix anything. Um, that doesn't come across as justice to me. It comes across as revenge, which are two very, very different things. And plus, these people who are getting long sentences for these horrible things they've done, they're going to have a miserable, you know, life, rest of their life in prison, which you know, in a certain way is justice in and of itself. So that's just been something I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I've been kind of debating whether or not to talk about it on here, but you know, it, it seemed like a good, a good time to go ahead and talk about it. And that's all the thoughts I have about that. So let's go talk about some comics. And we're back. And again, we're going to get this episode rolling with Action Comics number 969, cover dated December 14th, 2016. And this issue is written by Dan Jurgens with art by Patrick Zercher, is lettered by Rob Lee, and Arif Prianto is the colorist. Tyler Kirkham and Arif Prianto did the main cover, and Gary Frank and Brad Anderson did the variant cover. Now, before I go on to talk about the covers like I usually do, I want to address the issue of Patrick Zercher. Now, I've said on the show before that I thought he was a pretty good dude. I think his art is good. It's, he's not my favorite artist by any means. I, I do like it. I do enjoy it. But I, what I liked about him better was I thought he was a, a pretty solid guy, right? Um, I followed him on Twitter for years. He was a, you know, a curmudgeon, which, you know, is one thing or the other, but he seemed all right. Now, I am now going to retract that statement. Um, Recently on Twitter, he made some comment, and I don't remember the exact uh, text of it, but it was basically saying that a lot of today's hero male hero costumes he thought were not masculine enough and I actually just kind of brushed that off when he said it I'm like oh well that's just Patch being being a cranky old man you know kids these days but apparently a a lot of folks took exception to it Um, a lot of folks in the LBGTQ community took offense to it and they said well you know basically that's you know saying that men, you know, even if his comments were true, I don't think they're accurate, but even if they were true, they basically said, so you're saying that men don't have any place at all looking 
less than your ideal of what masculinity is. And instead of, you know, reading the room and saying, you know, oh, you know, I didn't realize that my comment would cause offense. I didn't mean it that way. You know, please accept my apology. He doubled down and his double down really came across as homophobia. And that's how a lot of people took it. That's how I took it. And I have since unfollowed him. Um, someone else that I'm a mutual with replied or retweeted, you know, something that he did or said, just like some art of his or something. And since then, I've just muted him. I just don't want to see him on my timeline anymore. And so, you know, like I said, it wasn't the initial comment that particularly bothered me, but it was when it was brought to his attention you know, and to mine that it could have come across as offensive to the LBGTQ community. He didn't attempt to make amends. He just made it worse. And so I don't think he's that good of a dude anymore. I don't think he's reached comic skate level yet. Um, I honestly won't know if he will unless someone else I follow, you know, does a thread about it or something. But, I, you know, I think it's him being a not just a cranky old man, but now a very uh, insensitive old man. You know, but you kids and you and your gayness and rah, 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 rah. like, okay, that that's enough, dude. You know, I don't want to hear it at Thanksgiving. I don't want to see it on my Twitter account. But you know, I will still give him credit for his art. I won't refuse to, you know, utter his name on the show like I would with other, with actual comics gators until he does something worse and then I may have to. But for now, I will still give him credit. And when his art is good, I will say it is good. I just will no longer label him as a good guy. So anyway, the main cover is fine. Um, again, the, the pencil on this is uh, Tyler Kirkham, who did the last issue of the series. Um, Kirkham's work is fine. It's a little too cartoony, but it, you know, it's okay. And it's Lex in the foreground in his uh, power armor. And he's got a cannon coming out of each shoulder and a cannon on his right forearm. And he's blasting, you know, unseen things off of the page. And Superman is right behind him. And behind them, is an image of the face of the god killer Lakal, who I will talk about in just a moment. The variant cover is great. Uh, again, it's Gary Frank, who I love. And it's really only tangentially related to the details of the issue, but it's Superman surrounded by these green globes, and each globe has an image from something in his past. It has the the Smallville farm and what looks like the uh, Sunstone Crystals. We have Batman, we have Jimmy and Perry, Doomsday at the Daily Planet, Lois, Crypto, uh, a Legion flight ring, which feels like uh, um, uh, Frank kind of doing a callback to the Superman and the Legion arc that he did with Jeff Johns back in the late 2000s, and some other stuff whose details aren't very clear, but it's really cool. And the only thing that really tangentially ties us to the issue is that the the God Killers 
um, get their images of the future from these kind of magic glowing spheres. And that's it. But it's still a really cool cover. And Superman's in the middle of it, like gasping in shock and horror. And it's it's, it's just a fantastic cover. But we, um, So before we get into the issue, let's do a little bit of recap because it's been a few weeks since we've talked about this series. So since our Clark, the pre-Flashpoint Clark, who along with pre-Flashpoint Lois and their son John are now living in the post-Flashpoint universe, since uh, he uh, began operating in public as Superman again, he's had two major conundrums. One of, which, uh, one of which is Lex Luthor, who, since the events of Forever Evil during the New 52, has taken a hero turn and is now wearing a Superman-themed power armor and is calling himself the Superman of Metropolis. And the other conundrum is this other Clark Kent, who does not have any powers and who truly believes himself to be the one and true Clark Kent, has no idea that our Superman is also Clark Kent. And uh, he claims that he and the New 52 Superman were completely different people and that New 52 Superman was only pretending to be Clark Kent. So that is a major mystery. Now, last uh, in the last two issues, uh, Lex was confronted by these beings called the God Killers, one of which is named Lakal, and the other one is named Zaid. And they want to execute Lex for crimes that he supposedly will commit in the future as the new overlord of Apocalypse. And last issue, they uh, captured Lex, but instead of executing him on the spot, they teleported away with him. And so now we open with Superman flying uh, or hovering above the buildings of Metropolis. And it's a really cool shot. It's from up in the air. We see this great perspective shot as we're looking between the buildings down to the street below with Superman uh, hovering there. And we see uh, Lois and this other Clark. And it looks like they're on top of the Luthor building looking up at him. And when the God Killers made off with Lex, this other Clark's argument was, well, so what? If he's going to do all these awful things in the future, wouldn't it be better to just let him die? It's kind of like a, you know, if you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you kind of issue. And of course, our Superman said, no, that's not what I do. And Lois is like, no, that's not what he does. And so um, we also see John on a lower building, like across the street, kind of looking up at him, looking up at Lois and this other Clark. And John is saying, Dad told me to stay here, but he looks like he's just talking to that guy that looks just like him. And so Superman flies back down to the to the roof of the building, and he says that he has used his X-ray vision and telescopic vision to search everywhere in Metropolis, and Lex is nowhere to be found, and they must have taken him off-planet. And he says that the God Killers used a very specific energy signature when they teleported, which reminds him of something, and so he flies away. Now, on the distant planet of Nidisi is where the God Killers have taken Lex, and it's a really interesting looking planet. It looks like the planet's been broken at some point. It's like a big 
swath of the crust from one, like all the way around the equator has been ripped off. And we're seeing energy or lava or something down on the planet. And the, the beings who live on the planet are commenting that the God killers have brought back one of their targets, which they've never done before. They've always executed a target on site. This is completely unheard of. And so within their headquarters, uh, Zaid and Lakal are kind of smacking Lex around. And Lakal is the leader of the two. And he's a big muscly guy. And he has kind of chalk white skin and shoulder length brown hair and a beard and this kind of black and white and purple armor. And his partner Zaid is an even bigger guy with also chalk white skin and black and silver armor. And uh, he has these two big tusks that curve out from under his jaw. And he has long kind of blonde hair. And Zaid has the power to weaken anything, apparently. It's not just that he can neutralize powers. He is weakening Lex's ability to think. And we saw when Zaid was fighting Superman that he could actually weaken Superman's powers. And so they are... They're not making Lex like, I don't know how to talk, I don't know how to think kind of dumb, but they are kind of scrambling his thoughts in such a way that he's not able to really form a coherent plan to free himself. And uh, Lacal takes this device and attaches it to the back of Lex's armor, which neutralizes it. And we see a slot open up on the side of Lex's armor and his mother box falls out. And that is what um, ultimately powers the armor together or all together, I should say. And Lex is arguing with him saying they've got the wrong man. And they say, no, the, uh, the, the spheres do not lie. Uh, they show you as the future overlord of apocalypse and you committing mass genocide all across the universe. And, um, and Lex is saying, well, if you're so certain of my guilt, why didn't you kill me on sight? Why did you bring me here? And Lacal's not really able to answer that. And from there, we go to a flashback. And we see several weeks ago, Lacal goes to this uh, lady named Cha'ar, C-H-A-R-R. And Cha'ar looks really neat. Um, she has chalk white skin and chalk white hair, and she's wearing this long chalk white robe. And it's a really stunning image. The only problem is... <laughs> is that during the uh, Lois and Clark miniseries that I covered on issues four, uh, two, three, four, and 5 on this show, which were drawn by Lee Weeks, but also written by Dan Jurgens, the character of Blank also looked really cool. And he also had chalk white skin and long chalk white hair and wore all chalk white. And... I know it's a different artist, but I'm sure as the as the kind of architect of the story, Jurgens put in his notes, okay, I want this character, I want their skin to look like this, and I want their hair to look like this, and I want their clothes to look like this. So it, it kind of feels like an idea getting recycled too fast. Like that was a year ago, publication time. I know it's been a minute with us, 
actually it's probably been about a year ago at the pace that I do these stories. But, um, but again, she looks neat. She's an older lady. And when Lacalle comes to her, she's standing in the bow of this huge tree, which is sticking out of the ocean, which is, you know, okay, sure. You know, whatever. It looks really neat though. And he comes to her and he kneels down and, um, he says that the Harkovian warlord is dead. The future of widespread death and destruction has been averted. And so he has just completed his latest mission, but he says it is also going to be his last mission. He is old and he is tired. And Char says, for generations, you have served as our sword of justice. Take solace in the lives you have saved and the futures you have ensured. And he says, but it's it's too much. It's too much killing. And he said, I've, I've killed so many people for the sake of protecting the future that I've lost count. And I can't even remember their names anymore. And uh, Char tells him, uh, you have paid a heavy price, old friend. Still, it is infinitesimal when compared to those who live because of your actions. Don't you wish there had been someone like you to prevent the slaughter inflicted on your own world? And he says, it doesn't matter. I wish a lot of things. That doesn't matter anymore. He goes, we're done. And so he just takes off his helmet and he just walks away and finds someone else, finds someone else who wants blood on their hands. And so then Zade just kind of appears. Apparently Zade maybe he can block people's perception of him or maybe Char can, but he just comes like, remember, um, Zade is massive. Zade kind of reminds me of the character Maul, M-A-U-L from Wildcats. Um, one of the early image series, you know, with, the, with his size and his tusks and everything. And there's no way he was hiding behind this tree. Maybe he was in the ocean or something, but my guess is that one of the two of them, can kind of block people's perceptions. And so she tells him to come out and uh, Char wants Zaid to convince Lacal not to quit because now is the time for his most important mission. If he wants this to be his last mission, fine, but he needs to do one more mission and that's to go find and kill Luthor. And, you know, he suggests, you know, don't expect me to use my power on on Lakal. He's he's too noble for that. It's too noble of a cause. I'm not going to influence his way of thinking. And um and Char, come on, app says what when he learns what the future holds, I doubt special persuasive measures will be necessary. And so Zaid looks like he walks across the desert and then he goes into a cave. And he takes off his armor and he strips down to just his boots and his pants. He lays his weapons down. He kneels before this this pool of water and lights like three dozen candles and then sits cross-legged in a meditative position. And we zoom in on him and we see all these scars along his back from all these all these battles he's been in. And then the water starts to bubble and he says the name of his dead wife and his dead daughter. And then the pool of water makes the, this huge bubble in the air with the image of his wife and his daughter. And so I don't, I don't know exactly what Lacal's power is supposed to be. If he can, cause there's something about this, you know, like Lacal and Zaid and Sha'ar, they seem to be of the same race. They seem to, they all have the same like chalk white skin. And, 
they read the future in spheres. And here we have big spheres of water with an image in it. So I don't know if Lacal can use his power to see the past in these spheres or if he can just project an image into them. Now, the, the way this reads, it looks like Lacal is about to commit suicide while looking at an image of his wife and his daughter. It's like he wants to, he wants to, them to be the last thing he sees before he ends his life. Now, he doesn't have any weapons next to him when we see him sitting on the ground. But then Zaid enters the cave, the cave and calls Lakal's name, which makes the bubble pop, which makes the image disappear. And then Lakal just has a sword in his hand. So, like, I feel like the sword was just behind him when we see him sitting down or something, or maybe he can summon a weapon to his hand. I don't know. Um, but he actually attacks Zaid for disturbing him at this moment, which makes me think that this was kind of like a a, um, a seppuku kind of moment where you mentally prepare yourself for death and you know commit yourself to the action to the point where it's almost like mentally painful to break that action. But uh, Zaid again, Zaid is huge, and he just kind of blocks the attack. And he says he wouldn't interrupt Lakal if it wasn't so important. And they go outside, and I gotta say, Lakal looks a lot cooler without all that armor on. When he's just standing there in his um, like the like the the pants and boots of his uniform, in these kind of gloves that go up past his elbows, with his long hair and his beard, and he's kind of doing that. Like Luke Skywalker standing in the on the desert of Tatooine, looking out at the two suns and the sunset. It's kind of that moment. You, you expect to hear that John Williams music. And he said, Lacal says that he knows that Cha'ar sent Zaid to convince him to come back. And uh, and uh, Lacal has some really good dialogue here. He says, "Do you know what happened when I killed the Harkovian warlord? All three of his wives were present, as were his children." Over time, this man would become a despot of a dozen planets in an act of genocide of 33 different species. Evil as he was destined to be, the cries of anguish still echo in my mind, as do the pleas and cries of all my victims. No more. And uh, again, he starts to say, don't use your power on me, and Zaid says he never would. But that's a really powerful argument. It's weighing the greater good of the future versus a tragedy that you would be committing now, you know, like I, if you believe in the concept of sins, it's like you're taking the sins of the future upon yourself to protect it. And, um, and that's, that's really heavy. And that's kind of the theme of this arc, um, which I'll go to in a little bit when I finish talking about the issue. Um, and, uh, Zaid is saying that Cha'ar wants him to come back, and Lakal says no. Um, but that's when Zaid says, Darkseid is dead. That's why you feel safe in stopping. But the spheres reveal his replacement, an earther with the means and temperament to equal the Dark One. Can you allow such a thing? And that is when um, Lakal pauses for a moment and tells Zaid to get ready to leave for Earth in the morning. Now, uh, we get a little editor's note. It says... Uh, See the Justice League Dark Side War from the New 52. 
for Darkseid dying. I have not gotten to that arc yet in my New 52 read. I'm about 15, 16 months into New 52, so I'm in January, February 2013, and I'm liking it more than I thought I would. I did not like the first year of New 52. Um, like for Justice League, I can kind of take or leave Jeff Johns' writing sometimes. I liked his JSA in the late 90s, early 2000s when, he's, when it was coming out. I don't like it as much in retrospect. I really like his Superman stuff after Infinite Crisis. New Krypton, Superman and the Legion, Last Sun, all that. Really, really good. I like it a lot. I don't like... I don't like the first 12 months of his New 52 Justice League. Honestly, part of that is Jim Lee's art. I know Jim Lee's a really good artist, but everything Jim Lee draws to me feels like he was like, he, you know how people say that comic books nowadays are written for the trade? It's like Jim Lee draws for the poster, right? He's like, everything he draws looks like a pinup. And it doesn't tell a good story to me. And, you know, I liked Jim Lee in the early, early 90s when he was drawing the X-Men. I felt out of love with his art when I read Wildcats because I realized, one, he's not a great, he's not a good story composer and he's not a good visual storyteller. He, he draws good individual panels. Um, I, I did not like, um, I didn't like the, the arc of Superman written by George Perez. Because I knew he was just treading water, waiting to find out what Morrison was going to do. I know a lot of people love that first year of Morrison's action comics. I don't. Um, I think it's fine. I like this stuff after it better. I like this stuff with Vindictive X and all that. I think that's a lot more interesting to me personally. Um, but I'm, I'm liking the second year of New 52. I'm surprised at how much I like. I'm enjoying... Scott Lobdell's writing. I know Scott Lobdell's not a good dude. Um, and I don't like his stuff on X-Men. That's what actually turned me off to the franchise. I don't, you know, I, I hate his Red Hood and the Outlaws and stuff like that. But his Superman's good. Um, I, I am liking Justice League a lot more, um, like with Throne of Atlantis. And I think a big part of that is Ivan Reese's art. And like I said, I'm, I'm liking uh, action comics more like what Morrison is doing with Vindictive X. So I haven't gotten to Justice League uh, Dark Side War yet. I'm about to um, Forever Evil. I'm starting the, the arc that builds up to it, um, which is I'm really looking forward to. What I'm thinking about doing is at some point in the relatively near future, when I get to story beats in the New 52, that a that these stories that I'm covering for the podcast now are built upon, like this, with Dark Side dying, stuff like that, with Forever Evil, where Lex takes a hero turn, with uh, when Supergirl first encounters the new 52 version of the Cyborg Superman, I might do a special, ep a few, a few special episodes of the show to cover at least the broad strokes of those stories. Let me know what you guys think about that. Send me some, send me some comments on Twitter or something. But anyway, back to our story. 
So we're back in the present and Lex is kneeling down in their headquarters cave. And okay, this is funny. When the mother box fell out of his armor, they just dropped a bucket over it, which is really bizarre. But as Lex is debating with them over the ethics of killing someone for something they might do in the future, we see that the mother box is starting to bury its burrow down into the ground underneath it. And we don't see what comes of that uh, comes of that in this issue, but I'm sure it's coming up soon. And um, you know, they Lacal and Zade say that they must learn more about Lex. The Court of Remnants will uncover your secrets and determine your fate. So they're gonna put Lex on trial, which again is interesting. And uh, Lex tells them you have no idea who you're dealing with, whose symbol this is, and what it stands for, which is true. Because when Lacal and Zade first encountered Lex and Superman in Metropolis, they thought that Superman was wearing Lex's symbol, that Superman was a minion of Lex. So they do not know who Superman is. Put a pin in that. I'll come back to it when I finish talking about the issue. Um, but they say that he's a tyrant in training, a despot in the early stages of infancy. Justice demands that you pay for what you will do. And Lex says, you think I'm alone here. And when LaCall and Zade leave, Lex says, I'm not. There's a strong streak of good in you, Superman. You'll come for me. Put a pin in that as well. So back on Earth, um, Superman has flown to the Amazon. And in the beginning of this series relaunch, Superman and Lex and Wonder Woman fought Doomsday which had broken free of the control of a company called Genetocron, which this other Clark says he was investigating um, and went into hiding because they were Genetocron was coming for him. And that's why he says that New 52 Superman pretended to be him for a while to protect this other Clark. And recently, the Genetocron building was teleported to the Amazon, which is where Clark is, where our Clark is now. And we're seeing Clark's internal dialogue where he's saying, the God, when God Slayer teleports, he exerts a unique form of energy. I've seen that energy before in a residual form anyway. It was left behind after the Genetocron building was taken. So this is saying that the God Slayers, and, and I know that the book just calls Lakal the God Slayer, but I'm calling both Lakal and Zade God Slayers just for ease. Um, they teleported the building away. Doesn't say why. Well, Clark has a theory, though. Um, he says, I couldn't understand why someone would take an office building and drop it in the Amazon, but the God Slayers knew I would be watching these events unfold. Uh, or he says, the God Slayer. He couldn't destroy what's inside this building for reasons I don't yet understand, but he must have moved it so I wouldn't connect the dots. All right, I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. And... Um, uh, so Superman uses his supervision and there's these like cracked and broken, looks like glass pods. And Superman sees some symbols that are invisible to the naked eye on the pods. And he presses a button and the pods start glowing and open up a portal. And on the other side of the portal is the planet Nerisi, 
where the God Slayers are. And, um, and Superman is thinking, as much as I'd like to have the threat of one of the most evil men I've ever known removed, I have to do what's right. And on the last page, we see Superman flying to, through the portal thinking, I have to save Lex Luthor. All right, now let's double back. So a lot of people complain about the nature of the modern decompression of comic book storytelling, where back in the day, a story could take one issue or two, and today that same storyline is stretched out into a trade. This, you know, writing for the trade, right? And I think there's good and I think there's bad that comes from that. I think when you have a writer who specializes in it, uh, it can be really well. Or when you have a writer who came into the business after decompression became a thing can be good. Like, for example, um, I think of the decompression starting with Bendis' run on the Avengers in the mid-2000s. It probably started somewhat before that. It probably realistically started with um, Morrison on New X-Men. But I think of it as a, being a Bendis thing. And I think he did a good job. I don't love Bendis' run on the Avengers. I'm just not a huge Avengers fan. But I think he does a good job. Philip Kennedy Johnson, he came into the business with decompression already being a staple of the industry. He does an excellent job on it. Did the World World Saga need to be as long as it did? Probably not. It could have been condensed, but would it have been as good? Probably not. And so there's a good, there, excuse me, there's good and there's bad. <laughs> excuse me. Um, but um, here, I, I don't think that Jurgens does a great job of decompression. The Doomsday Arc at the beginning of the series, that could have been probably two issues long. This is a six issue arc. It could probably be done in three. There's a way too much, there, there's too many issues, it's just fighty fight. The first two issues of the story arc is just fighty fight. But I do like this issue. I, I talked about it when they did the, the two part arc with Lois taking over, you know, filling, filling the shoes of her new 52 counterpart. That was a good, quiet issue. Jurgens, in my opinion, in this era, is better at drawing issues that are more about internal conflict than he are than he is writing stories about about external conflict fights and stuff. This issue is mostly about internal conflict. It's the you know it's Lex arguing with the God Killers that they can't kill him for something that he hasn't done yet. It's uh, Lacal uh, struggling with whether he wants to be responsible for one more death after killing so many people for generations. It's Superman, even though he knows there's no, there's no debate in his mind whether or not he needs to save Lex, it's kind of an external debate with other people. It's, it's people vocalizing what would otherwise be his internal struggle, like with the other Clark Kent. And that's really good. That being said, there are some inconsistencies in this. Like I said, the God Slayers, they don't know who Superman is, which one doesn't really come across as realistic at this point. Um, 
it's been shown both before Flashpoint, after Flashpoint, in the New 52. By the time Superman is, a, at least the New 52 Superman was established, that Superman is a, is a cosmic quantity, right? He's a known element throughout the universe. So for these two who've been going around the galaxy for generations, you know, taking care of potential genocidal maniacs, that they would at least have heard of Superman and know what the House of El symbol looks like. So that's one thing that doesn't quite add up. The second is um, Clark, uh, and again, this is supposition on his part, but saying that the thinking that the God Slayers teleported the, the Genetocron building out of Metropolis to the Amazon to keep it away, to keep him from knowing about it. Well, if they don't know who he is, then it doesn't make sense that they would have taken this building out of play to hide something from him specifically. So that really doesn't track. Now, other than that, good issue, probably the best issue of this arc, uh, which does not bode well for the next three issues that we're gonna cover. But again, it's been a while. I don't remember, I could be wrong. It could be full of like lots of soap opera drama and I could really enjoy it. But my expectation is that there's going to be a lot of fighty fight and it might not be the best thing ever. But that is it for Action Comics number 969. So I am going to go take an ad break. And when I come back, we'll talk about New Superman number six. And we're back with New Superman number six. Uh, the credits for this are all the way at the end, which I hate. <laughs> um, that's the only thing I dislike about this issue, by the way. This is a really, really good issue. Um, uh, it is written by Jean Luen Yang. It is, uh, penciled by Victor Bogdanovich, uh, or Bogdanovic, I should probably say. Richard Friend is the inker. Hi-Fi does the colors. Dave Sharp does the letters. Bogdanovic and Hi-Fi do the main cover, and Bernard Chang does the variant. Um, the main cover is of uh, uh, Kong uh, Kenan, uh, the new Superman of China, uh, grappling with his uncle, the human firecracker, while his father, flying dragon general, looks on closely behind them, and then members of the uh, China's Great Ten are looking on from above and behind them with the Wonder Woman and Batman of China with uh, Starro drones attached to their faces looking down from above them and then a crashing and burning airplane in the background. It's a really good cover. The, the variants um, I'm not a fan of, to be honest. I've loved Chang's cover so far. Um, this one is of, like, Diana Wonder Woman, the Themyscarian Wonder Woman, in the front, um, having blocked several bullets with her bracers. And then Kenan kind of coming out from where he was hiding behind her, sipping on a cup of boba tea. And the, the bottom of the cup has been shot, and all the, the tea and the boba is leaking out, and there's bullet holes in the wall behind him. It is a fun and funny cover, but Wonder Woman's face looks really weird, and we're looking at it from almost up her nostrils, 
which is bizarre. Um, so it, it's the only thing I don't like about the cover is the way they do Wonder Woman's face. Um, but other than that, it's, it's cute and funny. So there's a lot to decompress about the backstory of this issue. So I'm just going to go over the broad strokes of what you need to know going in and we'll break down the rest as we get to things that pertain to it as we go through the issue. So uh, again, the new Superman of China is a, a young man named Kong Kenan and he was chosen by the mysterious Dr. Omen of the Ministry of Self-Reliance to receive um, an infusion of energy that was put out by the New 52 Superman, um, which gave him superpowers. He was teamed up with the new Batman and new Wonder Woman of China. And um, recently they have come up against the Freedom Fighters of China who were led by Kenan's father, who went by the name of Flying Dragon General. And the Freedom Fighters of China were, their, their whole deal was they are trying to get this artificially created Starro drone, which in turn creates more Starro drones, and whoever's wearing the main drone can control everyone else who's wearing the offspring drone. Drones, excuse me. And at this point, um, um, the new Batman and the new Wonder Woman, they've been enslaved by the drones, an entire airplane full of people have been enslaved by the drones. They're on an, an airplane, and the plane is set to crash into Shang, uh, to, um, Beijing. And um, uh, Kenan's father has defected from the Freedom Fighters to help uh, Kenan, and they're going to go stop the Freedom Fighters. So that's what you need to know going in. So we open with the uh, with the Great Ten addressing the the uh, politicians in the center of Chinese national government, and they're letting them know about the plane. And one of the the leaders that they're contacting is the the guy who's the CEO of the airline whose plane this is. It should also be mentioned that uh, Kennan's mom has been dead for a few years now, and he was under the impression that she died on one of this airline's airplanes, that there was a crash and she died. So he's, he's held a grudge against the CEO and the CEO's son, who Kennan goes to school with. And um, the Great Ten is letting them know, like, look, this plane has been hijacked by the Freedom Fighters. It, um, they've got all these people hostage. All the people have these things on their face. If we just rip the things off, it's going to cause brain damage. And so we have no way to stop this plane from crashing into Beijing without taking the plane out. And the people are like, well, you do what you got to do. But then August General and Iron, the leader of the Great Ten lets the CEO know, by the way, your son is on there. And so they're like, the guy's like, well, are you asking my permission for you to kill my son along with all these other people to save, you know, Greater Beijing? And August General Iron says, not permission, acquiescence, which is really powerful as saying, I'm not asking you if you're okay with me doing this. I'm letting you know this is going to happen and you need to be okay with this because it's for the greater good. And that's, that's 
that is really powerful. So um, we next see um, Kenan and his dad in this in this like super jet thing that they've borrowed from the Ministry of Self-Reliance, and they're flying to catch up to um, to the airliner. And Kenan's powers have been very wonky since he got them. Like he first got them, and he's got strength and he's got flight. But then, as soon as he lost his confidence in what he was doing, he lost his powers. And I had theorized that it was kind of like um, Gladiator of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard of Marvel Comics and X-Men Comics specifically, where his powers were based on how much he believes in himself, right? And it, that, that kind of played out. But then they go into um, kind of a Chinese internal medicine kind of thing like that where um, Dr. Omen's assistant is this lady named Ming Ming. And she said that she hasn't just absorbed this energy from the new 52 Superman. It's a portion of his life force. And she thinks of it as chi. And which, you know, neat parallel with what's going on in the Supergirl comic that we covered last issue where it's where they're stealing quote-unquote odic force from people, which is also life force, which could also be defined as chi. And she talks about how Superman's chi has the same intention that Superman did, where it has his nobility. And Kenan needs to use his powers in a noble way, in a way that has a, a conscious effort to it. Like, he has to you know, concentrate on the fact that he's going to do something good and noble to get his powers to work, or they're not going to work. And she says, start by aligning your intention with Superman so that they are one and the same. That's very cool. And so, um, Kenan's dad flies their plane above the airliner. And um, he opens the like the cargo hatch of the plane, and Kenan's like, okay, my powers aren't working at the moment, but I've got to get them going right. And so he concentrates on it, um, and then he, he begins focusing on aligning his intention with Superman's. And we get this shot of Kenan's midsection. It's like his, his abdomen. And we see this orange energy glowing out of it, which is really neat. Um, and they don't explain this in the comic, but I've read enough New Age stuff to know what they're going at. So, also because I used to be really, really into martial arts, and I used to read lots of you know, internal martial arts stuff too, even though I don't necessarily believe in it, but I think it's neat. So, internal martial artists, the ones who deal with, with chi, right, they believe that there's this energy center in your body that's kind of parallel to your belly button. Like, it's in the center of your mass on the, on the same, like, vertical, you know, horizontal area where your belly button is, and it's called the dantian. And they believe that that is where you focus and harness chi. And along the same lines, New Age circles believe that your body has several different energy points, chakras, right? And one of them is in the same place in your body that the Dantian is, and they believe it's represented by the color of orange. So this orange energy coming out of Kenan's midsection around his belly button kind of aligns with different, you know, schools of thought or belief 
of how you know the body's life force works, which I think is really neat. And um, it says, uh, Kenan's internal monologue says, my belly, the core of my being, that's where Superman's chi wants to go. His life force, my life force, heats up my whole body like a stove. That's also really neat um, because like people in in ancient China who practiced the internal martial arts, they also believed that the Dantian was like this furnace where, where chi was kind of refined. And so thinking of it as a stove is, is also pretty neat. You can tell Yang really, really does his homework whenever he writes anything. I've talked about this on uh, Digging for Kryptonite when I talked about um, uh, Superman Smashes the Clan, how much uh, research he did into the Superman radio show. Um, I eventually want to talk about Yang's run on uh, Batman Superman from both during Future State and shortly after. How much um, how much research he did also into the not only the radio show but the newsreels not newsreels but the the, the movie serials from the 1940s. There's a lot of thought into what he does. That's why he's become one of my favorite writers. And so we see this energy pattern surrounding Kenan's body. And I think it's supposed to be representative. I don't think it's supposed to be really there. I don't think Kenan or anybody else can see it. But it looks like the uh, the trigrams that you see of, of the I Ching, which is really cool. And so he's all he's all powered up now, and he jumps down onto the plane, but his flight doesn't work, but his invulnerability does. So thankfully, he doesn't get hurt. He lands on the plane, and then Kenan's dad lowers this huge tube down, which creates an airlock so that Kenan can punch through the hull of the plane without creating a vacuum that's going to suck, suck everybody out into the, out into the air. And so... Uh, we see Kenan kneeling on the ground, and he's kind of meditative looking, like he's sitting on his knees, and he has his hands balled into fists, but they're kind of like palm up. And uh, Kenan is thinking, put that intention where his chi wants to go, Ming Ming said. I can feel the chi nudging me, so I push my intention up from my belly into my fist. And then we see Kenan's fists glowing orange, and they're kind of crackling with energy, and he punches the hull of the airplane and again we kind of get that I Ching diagram around his hands which looks really cool um for some reason and i don't know much about this but most of the the trigrams around it are red and two of them are yellow i don't know if that represents something i'm sure it does but my knowledge of this stuff is very very surface level so i'm not even going to attempt to theorize both in the plane we see the Freedom Fighters and several of the passengers, and the passengers all have these blue Starro drones on their face, and Human Firecracker, who is Kenan's uncle, who has taken over leadership of the Freedom Fighters, has the main drone, has the control drone on its face, and it's kind of glowing reddish-orange, or it's putting out the energy to control all the others. And so Kenan and his dad, they smash their way in, and, they, and they're fighting the other members of the Freedom Fighters, in the plane, and we have this lady named Sunbeam. Uh, we have Blue Condor. We have, I think her name's Ghost Lady. Um, and they all have like really cool and interesting designs. And Human Firecracker, he wears this kind of yellow and orange costume, and he has these wrist launchers. And normally they launch explosives, 
and it's shown where he also kind of can shoot shuriken out of them and he shoots the the starro drones out of his gauntlets like they're shuriken which is which is really kind of silly and fun all at the same time and Kenan grabs one it squishes in his hand he goes ah this feels even grosser than it looks then we see an actual shuriken uh go by his shoulder and actually tear the costume on his shoulder and the shuriken is saying die you government pawn and then the shuriken unfolds into this guy called folding paper man which is really neat he's a shapeshifter and his powers are literally based on he can turn himself into living kind of indestructible origami which is really neat but then Kenan just slaps the Starro drone on the guy's face and he just kind of blisses out and he falls down. And so Kenan does the same thing to the other members of the Freedom Fighters, to Sunbeam, to Blue Condor, and to Ghost Lady. Um, but then we get this close-up of Human Firecracker and, and the Starro drones, they start out really small and we see them crawling all over his head. He's got a shaved head. We see him clawing over his chin and his neck down into his armor. And it's really kind of gross and creepy looking. And he's drooling. So you get the feeling that he's not entirely in control. That he is kind of synced up with this artificially made Starro that just wants to conquer and destroy. And his word balloons are now yellow and they're... They're punctuated with orange-red stars, and the lettering is red. It's really cool. And he orders everyone else on the plane, who is under the control of the Star Jones, to rise up and kill those two traitors. And so we get this splash page of Kenan and his dad being grabbed by all the passengers and then trying to force uh, Star Jones on their on their face. And one of the one of the people that tries to kill Kenan is Daylan, the Wonder Woman of China. And she has a very kind of Chun-Li from Street Fighter vibe going on where she's got the, the pigtails that have the, it has a bun in the back and this green headband that makes these two kind of ball things that the, that the ponytails come out of. And she wears a green um, short skirt costume instead of blue. Um, she's definitely the brains of the group, but she unfortunately is being controlled and, um, and Kenan is thinking about how, uh, his homework said that the original Starro could be defeated by extreme cold. Hopefully the same is true for the ministry's lab created versions. <laughs> and so we see him trying to use Superman's freeze breath on Daylon and we just see him go, <sighs> and blowing in her face but does absolutely nothing and she just throws him against the nearest wall which is really funny but the nearest wall that he gets thrown up against is next to the bathroom where uh lee shin the son of the airline ceo has been hiding and he tells kenan that if you need cold there is a freezer in the galley and they tell um lee shin tells kenan how to find it and so um, instead of uh, fighting uh, Daylon, um, Ken decides he's going to fight Bai Shi instead, the Batman of China, who uh, does not have powers. Um, he is also very smart. He is an overweight guy, which is an interesting choice for a a person who is who doesn't have powers and is supposed to be an athletic martial artist. But you can tell that. Um, 
one Baishi wasn't being controlled by Staro, he mostly relied on his wits and his gadgets. Which, you know, kind of reminds me of, like, the Michael Keaton Batman. You know, he he wasn't in super athletic shape. He was in good shape, but he relied on his gadgets and his bulletproof suit and his brains and all that. And so Kenan grabs Baishi in a headlock, and he smushes his face into a freezer full of ice, which makes the... The Starro drones shrivel up and fall off. And so, like, okay, look, we got, we got. <laughs> well, first, first we get some dialogue, which is really funny. And uh, and uh, from with his face still in the ice, Baishi says, "If you value your hands, dummy, you'll let go of my head." And Kenan says, um, "I can't tell you how happy I am that you're okay, Tubby." And Baishi says, "Get off me, Batman doesn't hug." And so, uh, Baishi gives Kenan a heads up, the Daylon, that Daylon is coming to attack him. And so, uh, Kenan grabs Daylon's wrist just as, she, just as she goes to, like, double punch him upside the head and tells him to kick a small hole in the side of the airplane, no bigger than his uh, bat respirator, his breathing apparatus. And so, Kenan kicks a tiny hole over it, which starts to let in a bunch of air, but then... Um, Baishi attaches his bat respirator to it, seals the hole, and he has it set to hyper-freeze the air. So all this air that's rushing in is being filtered through the respirator and making it, like, freezer cold in there. And uh, so Kenan laughs and goes, Ha-ha, you know what, Tubby? You are Batman! And Baishi says, Say it again! And Kenan says, No. So very funny. Um... Now we get a panel that says uh, where the people start to wake up after the starfish have fallen off their faces and someone says, I just had the weirdest dream about glowing green rings and the editor's box says see Hal Jordan and Green Lantern Corps number 8 and 9 to see what the passengers saw. No. No thank you. Um, I am not a Hal Jordan fan. Um, That series at this point was drawn very frequently by the leader of the Comics Gate movement. Um, I appreciate that series for the fact that Kyle Rayner shows up every once in a while, but I just don't care enough to go read it. So, no thank you. I'm going to pass. Um, and so, um, the unfortunate side effect of the starfish falling off is they've also fallen off the face of the other Freedom Fighters. And when Blue Condor... Uh, renews his attack on our heroes. He refers to them as 50 centers, which the editor's box helpfully says is a term to describe a government stooge. So while I was waiting on a bus to go by just now, I decided to look that up. And it says the 50 cent party, also known as the 50 cent army, are internet commentators who are hired by the authorities of the People's Republic of China to manipulate public opinion and disseminate disinformation to the benefit of the governing communist China. And why they're called the 50 Cent Army, I don't know. Um, That's interesting. I'm going to have to go look that up at some point, but I'm not going to do any more research on it right now. But it is interesting. And so um, before um, the Freedom Fighters can renew their attack too much, Daylon draws to their attention the fact that the Great Ten are in the air outside the airplane preparing to destroy it. And so Daylon leads um, 
leads uh, by she, Batman, and those freedom fighters who can fly out of the airplane to stall the Great Ten. Now, one would think that it's just shouting, attack! She says, you will leave immediately, Great Ten. This aircraft is under the protection of the Justice League of China. Um, One would think that probably is not the best strategy to get a team that wants to um, is already set to blow up a plane full of people to listen to reason but I also acknowledge the fact that they're probably supposed to be like 18 years old um, Daylon and, and Baishi and Kenan and so oh, Kenan's on this like cool bat hoverboard thing which is really neat so I will give them uh, the benefit of the doubt that they are leading with their uh with their fired up hormones more than they are leading with reason. So uh, Kenan goes into the cockpit where his dad is fighting human firecracker and um, um, basically human firecracker just like shoots some explosives at Kenan, which bounces harmlessly off of him and Kenan grabs his wrist and tweaks it and we see, we hear a crack uh, doesn't say whether or not it's broken or sprained, but human cra- human firecracker is somewhat taken out of action. But then he says, ha, I saw what happened to you uh, when your powers abandoned you whenever you were afraid. And I know exactly what makes you afraid. And he throws an explosive at Kenan's dad, which, as uh, human firecracker predicted, makes Kenan lose his focus and lose his powers. And... His uncle starts to beat the tar out of him. We're actually seeing blood flying as human cracker is laying, human firecracker is laying into uh, Kenan with his fists. Um, and he's standing over Kenan. And he says, uh, I've sacrificed everything, my education, my career, my brother, are now an airliner full of innocence, all for the sake of the greater good. If anyone embodies truth, justice, and democracy, it's me. And then Kenan just reaches up and yoinks the control drone off of his uncle's face. And there's a huge bloody ripping noise, um, which I'm sure that hurt. We see, we see his, his uncle scream. I'm sure it like was being pulled out of the nerves of his brain or something, uh, which Kenan then turns around and, um, and knocks his uncle almost unconscious. He goes to check on his dad, and his dad says, that crazy bastard turned his body into a bomb. And human firecracker, weakly through shattered teeth, says, not a bomb, a firecracker. And before it can go off, Kenan's dad leaps on top of his brother and takes the brunt of the explosion that rips out of human firecracker's armor. And so... Um, outside of the plane, we see the plane turning around and, um, it doesn't really seem like, oh, <laughs> the, 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 the freedom fighters are still attacking the great 10. The great 10 has kind of given up trying to destroy the plane. Now they're just defending themselves from, uh, the freedom fighters and Kenan comes over their communicator and says they have to get their dad to the hospital and he doesn't know how to fly the plane. And so uh, Daylon and Baishi go back inside because Baishi 
have studied everything in an effort to be as much like Batman as humanly possible. And so inside the plane, Kenan is having a heart-to-heart with her dad, with his dad. Um, I said earlier that Kenan's mom, he believed, died in a plane explosion. Uh, his dad told him that she was the actual founder of the Freedom Fighters. I forget what her code name was, but he believes that she was killed by Dr. Omen. And so that's part of why uh, Kennan's dad has had this vendetta against the uh, Ministry of Self-Reliance is to get justice for his wife. And, um, and so Kennan's dad is asking him to carry on his mother's fight, the fight for truth, justice, and democracy. And, um, and Kenan says, I don't even know what those things really mean. The only thing I know for sure is that I don't want you or anyone else I care about to ever get hurt. And his dad says, that's a good place to start. All you have to figure out next is how to care about more people. And so he's like, you know, it's great that you care about me. It's great that you care about your friends. Now you have to learn to care about everybody because you are Superman. And so the plane lands and they get met by a crowd of cheering people and reporters. And one of them is Lainey Lon, who is kind of the analog to Lois. And Kenan revealed his secret identity in like the second issue to Lainey on national television, mostly to impress her. But, you know, Kenan is not feeling it. And, um, and later we see them at a cemetery and he's standing in front of his mom's grave and his dad's grave. And so they both died on airplanes. Now they're both buried here. And Kenan says, he told me the Ministry of Self-Reliance killed my mom. He said he had proof, but I want to know exactly who it was in the ministry, the specific person who ordered her death. And before this point, Kenan had been uh, butting heads with Elon and Vaishi. You know, they were, they were all in on the program. They were all about following the rules. He was the rule breaker. Uh, but then I said, okay, look, you know, Kenan's basically decided to stop being a jackass and to want to help people, not just be self-serving. And they realize that the ministry is not out for the greater good. That So they are going to help Kenan get to the bottom of what's going on. And so later... Um, at the Oriental Pearl Tower, the Ministry of Self-Reliance headquarters, Ming Ming gives Kenan the card of her martial arts instructor, which is Yi Ching, who I don't know much about this guy, but I, I, I think he's the guy who trained Lady Shiva. I don't know. I know it's a whole like Batman, like question side of the DC universe thing that I don't know a lot about. I know of the name. I know he's a master martial artist beyond that. I don't know much. Maybe he's the guy who trained Wonder Woman in the 60s when she went through that whole non-powered thing. I don't know. He's a big deal martial artist in the in the DC universe. That's all I know. And so later, um, at the Ministry of Self-Reliance Mountainside Research uh, Laboratory, uh, which is where um, Dr. Omen had done her original experiment in infusing people with New 52 Superman's expelled power. Um, we see her, uh, Dr. Omen opens a secret compartment. She goes down into this lab and, um, Kenan's dad by name was, uh, Zhang Dan. And Dr. Omen walks up to this tank 
where Kenan's dad is floating in the tank, kind of Luke Skywalker and back to tank style. And says, you never know, you never did know how to keep yourself safe, Zhang Dan. And for, fortunately, my compliance device makes your return to life a possibility. I'm going to find a way for us to be together again. I promise you, my love. So it doesn't flat out say it. Um, we know that this is Dr. Omen because the little, when she presses the button to open the chamber, little computer voices, welcome Dr. Omen. I don't know if this is implying that Dr. Omen is in fact Kenan's mom or if Dr. Omen was in some kind of relationship with Kenan's dad. But my, I, I think it's implying that Dr. Omen is really Kenan's mom. So this issue was excellent. I'm really, really enjoying this series. Uh, like I've said, I absolutely love um, Gene Luen Yang's writing. I've, I've loved everything he's written so far. Um, there are like there are characters I do not care about that I am happy to go read because I know that Gene Yang has written them. Really, really good stuff. Um, this is excellent. I love the fact that he's writing something in the Superman family. I can't wait uh, for Kenan to meet Clark for the first time. I'm looking forward to that uncomfortable conversation about how Kenan is empowered by the energy that was given off by what Clark sees as his his little brother now because he, he even though they only met like once or twice and it was in like the heat of battle he thinks of New 52 Superman as his, as his brother and he happened to be younger um, so I cannot wait for that to to come around here in the rebirth era so um, that is all I have to say about this comic book other than if you have not read it yet you really, really should go read um, New Superman if you have the app or if you, you know, want to go you know, on Comixology and get it or if you want to hit, hit up your local comic book shop and go, excuse me, go through the back issue, excuse me, and go through the back issue bins. So I'm going to take one more break and I'll be right back and we will wrap everything up. And that does it for episode 42 of Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk about these issues as much as I enjoyed talking about them. If you do enjoy what I'm doing here on the show, and if you'd like to support the show, I would invite you to check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash truthjusticeandhope, where every week I put out an issue, or an episode, where I talk about an issue of my favorite classic post-crisis Superman stories in chronological order of the... I don't talk about every issue that came out during that era, but I talk about the my favorite stories from that era in the order that they came out. I started with the Pocket Universe Superboy story from 1987, and I'm currently about halfway through Panic in the Sky from 1992. And again, those episodes come out every week, and there is a ton of content for you to enjoy in as a reward for your financial support. 
If you'd like to support the show in other ways, I would love it if you would leave me a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcast. And also, if you follow me on Twitter, at About Superman, where I tweet about Superman a lot. So next week on the show, I'm going to be talking about Superman number 13 from December 21st of 2016, where we continue Superman's confrontation with Frankenstein and the Bride enters the mix. And we will also talk about Superwoman number 5 from December 14th of 2016, where we continue the arc where Lana is having to contend with Lex's sister, Lena. And that will finish up all the comic books for 2016. We will actually start on 2017 in a couple weeks' time, which is very exciting. But until next week, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love ya.